Avi on Money, 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It is two minutes past two. Sorry, it's two minutes past twelve, and that's my first mistake on radio for 2018. But a big welcome to everybody. Thank you very much for joining us once again. I hope everybody had a great break. I hope, I hope everybody's rested. We had a lot of excitement over December. Um, I think everybody went into the end of 2017 a little bit frazzled, um, exhausted, frantic, frenetic. Um, there was a lot of tension in the air. The ANC conference somehow was really the dominant um, interest at the time because it really set the tone for 2018. It went off, in my opinion, far better than I ever expected. There was a part of me that was extremely pessimistic and thought that it might implode, which it didn't. Um, and it went off very well. I must say, Saul Ramaphosa's first policy that he's come out with does worry me a little bit. I'm not quite sure that land restitution without compensation is going to turn South Africa into the breadbasket of Africa. But be that as it may, and it all went well, but there's definitely an energy. There is a sense of calm. There's a sense of collected thinking. And I think that's the way we start in 2018. It might just be in my head, but even if, even if it's just in my head, I think that's a, that's a good place to, a good place to be. But in studio with me is Wayne McCurry. Wayne, welcome back to High FM. Thank you very much. And as always, it's wonderful to have you in. How did you find 2017? Well, look, it was, I suppose a difficult year because surprisingly enough it started out with quite a bit of promise we had uh, Praveen Gordon as a finance minister he was determined to stabilize the country's uh, fiscal balance he was quite determined to keep our investment grade ratings and the global environment was very supportive of emerging markets in other words the commodity cycle was in our favor so we started out actually quite optimistic but then unfortunately the global in, well fortunately the global environment stayed supportive but unfortunately the domestic political environment deteriorated rapidly now the reason why that's important is that it affects sentiment and sentiment is a major swing factor so you know just by the outcome of the election you get a quick change in sentiment you can actually change the direction The, the 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 ship is going in now i don't want to say we all of a sudden within two years going to be back at five percent growth which we aren't but we can at least have some decent economic growth maybe maybe we can get to say in a two to three year basis to two and a half percent which is certainly better than 0.7 that we had or 0.9 that we're going to have for for 2017 so those were the dominant factors lots of optimism in the beginning lots lots of pessimism at almost right up to the end of course once the election results came out ran strengthened strongly banking shares went up retail shares went up so there was a massive swing literally in days as we as we all know about but once again just to emphasize we're quite fortunate in that the global environment has been positive since I suppose 2016, 2017, and remains positive so far this year. So if we can get our act together here and have effectively all we need is stable policies and, and, and stable governance, uh, I, I don't think we should even consider that things 
are going to get worse politically. They can only get better because you are I'm not saying they're going to be good. I'm just saying they're going to get better because you are measuring off such an incredibly low base. There is, in fact, only one way it can go, and that is better. And under that sort of environment, the outlook is reasonably positive. I mean, it's certainly better than what we had last year. I, w- I want to separate the two issues. Yes. The international issue, let's come back to it a little bit later. The local domestic issue, and to use an example of a mothballed power station. Yes. When a power station is mothballed, it's basically shut down, a big fence is put around it, and you leave it alone. To get it fired up again is a major, major undertaking. Correct. Because you, you need to refurbish equipment, you need to get the rats and the mice out, etc., etc. Is our economy in that state? Have we mothballed certain institutions all? As the government has kept saying, do we have big business sitting on cash, yes. not spending? You must remember, big business doesn't sit on cash intentionally. They don't. They want to spend money. They want to make money. That's the way it works. The only time they sit on cash is if they don't see underlying demand growth. So if they don't see demand, they're not going to spend the money. If they see demand, they'll spend the money. So it is to a certain extent like a mothballed fire station. But surprisingly enough, there's actually very little we've got to sort out. And it, and it, it essentially boils down to the government. What we need is stable policy. So, in other words, this whole story about regulatory uncertainty, which we've had now for years, just frightens people. You know, when you don't know what the next move is, like take the mining chart as probably the best example. I mean, the people in the Department of Mineral and Energy didn't even know what was coming out in the mining charter, let alone the general public and let alone the mining investors and the mining companies. So, what we've got to overall is call it governance. We've got to put competent people in charge who are there to run run the departments, the SOEs, for the benefit of the, of the country, for want of a better word, and not for any other person's or people's benefit, and hopefully do a lot more competent a job than previous administrations. I don't think that will be terribly hard. <laughs> okay. And you need certainty on what taxes we're going to pay, certainty on the main policies, certainty on mining, certainty on financial charter, certainty on black economic empowerment. Even if you don't like it, as long as you know what's coming and it's certain, you can plan around it. You know, it's when you don't know what's coming and that affects sentiment. So in other words, to get the fire, to get the power station up and going again, all you've got to do is change sentiment for positive. You and I were thinking about buying a new car, but we didn't know where the rand was going and where interest rates were going. We were thinking about buying a new house or extending a house, but we didn't know whether what our salaries would be. We didn't know what interest rates, etc., were going to do. Now, when you get certainty, people will make those purchases. Then demand picks up. Business sees the increase in demand. They start spending more on capex, expanding factories, etc. So, surprisingly enough, it actually takes very little to change the sentiment and to change the, I suppose, the course of where the country's going. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I just want to discuss that idea of sentiment. We'll be back in a moment. Arby on Money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 FM. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. It's 10 minutes past 12. There is no stranger in the studio today. With me is Wayne McCurry. Wayne, once again, thanks for being here. Thank you. And just to wish you and your family everything of the best for 2018. Thank you. Um, 
We were discussing about sentiment just before the break, and then we spoke briefly um, um, during the break. What South Africa does has does have is a large emerging middle class Correct, yeah. population, people that previously were not part of that fold, who have come into it. Are, um, are earning, have one to spend, and they're not looking at Australia, New Zealand, no, or Canada. No. And this is their home. In a way, has that sort of negated government policy to an extent where, where I keep getting asked, how come we're doing so well hmm. when our government is really teetering look, on the brink of falling over? Look, the government hasn't really, government policies and all of that haven't really affected consumer expenditure negatively, massively negative. I mean, it is negative, make no mistake, simply because of the sentiment story. Simply, when people are uncertain about the future, they stand back. They don't take out that new loan, as we've spoken about. People just stand back. But where it has dramatically and clearly affected the economy is in capital expenditure. Take the, the resource sector for, the, for a moment. Everyone in the resource area scared about spending money starting a new venture because you just don't know what the laws are going to be is it 51 percent black ownership is it an additional tax that somehow the department of mineral affairs thinks they can levy a tax where only the department of finance can levy a tax you just don't know the background and what's going to happen going forward so you just do not spend the money and it's the same with any I suppose industrial concern etc. I mean the government itself sure, since 2010 has probably employed another 1.1 million people direct salaried so that has helped the economy and certainly the, the, the spending power I mean although it's grown at very very low levels it has still grown so you can't, it would be incorrect to say that government policies have destroyed the economy. They haven't destroyed it. We all still here, we, the economy is still going, you know, we haven't reverted to barter trade. The rand's not <laughs> at 40 against the dollar. So it's probably incorrect to say that the government has destroyed the economy, but they have severely hampered economic growth. Now, ultimately, South Africa is a commodity exporting country. When you come down to total basics. We're a commodity exporter and we have always been. It used to be gold, now it's iron ore, etc. But we're a commodity exporter. Now, just very briefly, commodity cycle peaked in 2009, call it that. We showed 5%, 4% growth rates for a number of years. In fact, we grew so strongly, we ran out of electricity. Then the commodity cycle went downhill to the end of 2015. So those were tough times. The government could not have reversed that. Even if we had the best government in the world with the best policies, when the main thing that you do, the price is falling, or what you sell and the price is falling, you're in trouble. Nothing, nothing can change it. And lots of other countries, Russia, Nigeria, Brazil, who are also big commodity exporters, actually went into fully blown recessions. Yeah, Brazil blew out. Yeah, blew out, completely blew out. We didn't blow out. Thank goodness for that. However, in the last two years, they've recovered quite nicely because the commodity cycle has recovered nicely. We have recovered. We are slightly better, but we could have been a lot better off had we not had this policy uncertainty and general governance by the administration. So we could have done better. So we had one positive. The world was on our side. 
commodity prices were going up, but that was more or less negated by the government and government policies and all the political uncertainty and everything we all know very well. Coming back to the mothballed power station scenario, mm. in resources, when sentiment is negative and no capex is spent, mm. when sentiment changes, hopefully, yes. and it's positive and capex is now wanting to be spent, Correct. it's not like flipping a switch. You've no, lost up, all no, those yours. Yes. So we can have a lag of yeah. many years. But you start spending the money immediately, even though the output might take you two oh, or three thank years. You. So the money, your CapEx expense day one. So CapEx goes into the economy. Yeah, and it, it goes into the economy mining companies spend. Now, let's talk about mining companies generally. They had such a tough time, especially 2014 and 2015. No, no one was making money, and you could even argue a few were going bankrupt. That has changed dramatically. Two things have happened. Number one, they slashed costs to the bone. Any mining venture that wasn't making money just closed it down. This is not South Africa and, and, and globally. Just closed it down. So they started 2016 at an extremely low cost base. And I'll use Kumba Iron Ore as the best example. Kumba Iron Ore used to cost them, say, $50, $55 a ton to mine iron ore. They got the price down to below 40 Okay, the problem was the iron ore price was 35. Now the iron ore price is 80, their costs are still 40. So now they're making a ton of money. They've got plenty of cash, but they deferred capital expenditure. They are going to now start to spend. All that they need is certainty of policy and the mining charter, which will be revised, and they will spend the capex. Now it's the same for all the other commodity all the coal, the whole lot. Platinum and gold slightly different, but the other commodities are quite good. How did their share reflect? Ooh, How yeah. did it reflect okay, that stuff and well. increase? Okay. Kumba sh- share price peaked in 2008, I think, at about, call it 600 rand. I think 650 rand. Next stop was 25 rand. It makes it sound of look like a walk in the park. Yeah, that's a commodity share. That's what they do. Next stop was 25, 27 odd, odd rand in 2015. Today trading at 405 rand. So it shows you the dramatic reversal that's on the back of commodity recovery. So iron ore was 150, it fell to 30 odd, it's now 80. And, and, and Kumba, just out of interest, is actually quite a good producer. They're not as low cost as the big Australian producers, but they produce a very much a premium quality. In other words, a high-grade iron ore. And with the massive crackdown we've seen in China against pollution, which we must not forget, this is one of their central policy tenements in China. They're not, they don't want to use the bad quality coal to burn in the, in the furnaces. They don't want to use the bad quality iron ore to smelt because it creates massive pollution. So Kumba's enjoying quite a fat premium over the standard iron ore price. So Kumba now is making, quite frankly, a fortune of money after being virtually bankrupt three years ago. And that virtual bankruptcy gave them an opportunity to tidy up the operation. Tidy up the operations totally. I mean, when, when life's good, you don't... Life's good? 100%. Yeah. When life's bad, you've got to make a plan. Well, quickly, before we run to the break, and this wasn't on what we want to discuss, but just uh, when it comes to platinum in South Africa, yes. we all know the Marikana story. It's Correct. an ongoing story. The, the shared uh, Marikana shared he died, yes. it reversed, and then it sort of gone back into the doldrums. Correct. But I've been looking at platinum shares. Take a solid producer like Northern Platts. Mm. Brilliant management team, neat, tidy operation. Shares not going anywhere. Yeah, because Why? Not, not making money. 
You know, what's happened in the platinum market is quite interesting. With this whole diesel emission scandal in Europe, no one's buying diesel anymore. Okay, so diesel uses platinum in the auto gets. Right. People are buying petrol. Petrol uses palladium. That's why the palladium price is significantly higher than the platinum price. And we can come back to that because at some, you can use either one. You can use platinum or palladium in diesel or petrol. It just depends on how your factory is set up. And it takes time and money to change from palladium to platinum or, or the other so way around. So you can use any, you can use any PGM. In it, it just depends. At the time, palladium was always cheaper, so they just used palladium. Now it's more expensive, so there may be a swap. But the demand for platinum has plummeted, and the demand for palladium has increased dramatically. And unfortunately, South African mines mine more pal- more platinum than palladium, so their net basket price is actually down. So there's only one big company making money now, and that's Amplats. So in other words, there's oversupply in the platinum market. Is this a case of a good management team running expenses correctly and sitting and waiting? To a certain extent, yes. I agree with that. But understand, like all commodity producers, there's very little of their operation they can control. So let's use a very stupid analogy. The supermarket downstairs. Right. If they see the demographics are changing of the population, if they see the demand is changing and people don't want to buy this type of product, they want this new, this new vegetable or whatever, they're following trends and fashions, you can quickly change what's on your shelf and sell it all. So you can add a huge amount of value to your business. Now, commodity producers are very different. They are dictated to by what the platinum price is. They, 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 they can influence it to a certain extent, but it's, that's dependent on global car production. They're under threat from electric vehicles. You know, they can run their operations, but the price of what they sell their product at is predetermined by someone else. And they can't really change the product because that's what their mind's got. But isn't that with all minerals? Yeah, it's the same with any commodity. That's why the commodity shares are high-risk shares because – Management has far less control of their destiny than other companies. Other companies can change their products. They can buy new things. They can, they, can, they can change what they do. But if you're sitting on a platinum mine, you can't all of a sudden produce iron ore. A hundred percent. You produce platinum. And, and effectively, the grade of the platinum in, in the ground is what it is. You can't Correct. change how much there is there. So commodity shares are actually very high-risk shares. They're not actually long-term hold and keeps. There. They're actually very, very risky shares. I mean, I was looking at returns from the share market. In the last 10 years, all the sectors, financials, industrials, have done 11% per year on average the last 10 years. Resources have done nothing. But in the previous 10 years, resources were the winning shares. They're very risky shares. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back, um, our president, President Zuma, said last year that the downturn in the economy has got nothing to do with us. It's got to do with economic global factors. Yeah, well, usual. And because it came from President Zuma, it was tainted with a sense of humor. Hmm. I'm sure there was some truth in that. Let's unpack that when we come back. Avi on money. 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. It's 23 minutes past 12. Thanks so much for staying with us. If you've just joined us, this is the first money show of the year. In studio with me is Wayne McCarroll. We've basically done a, a quick 
tour of 2017 sort of summed it up, had a look at it from a local perspective. Wayne, now looking at an international perspective, um, and yeah, I'm going to put my, my own opinion forward. Donald Trump is not somebody I'd like to have at my dinner table. No. Um, I wouldn't like my wife to go in a lift with him from floor one to floor two. But... And, and he's a chap that I wouldn't want to be in public with because I'm not quite sure what's going to come out of his mouth. Yes. However, if we look at what's happened to the world economy while he has been president, a lot of punters are saying it's just the cycle. He came in at the right time, just like Obama came in at the wrong time, and they're riding that wave. Yes. However, the whole policy of the Trump ad, um, administration is spending for the middle class, getting people to spend money, which we know is the biggest catalyst of investment yeah. within an economy. Am I seeing this from an emotional point of view, or have I got the economics right? Well, look, just first of all, <coughs> one of the big risks to this quite favorable global environment is what will Trump do? Because he is unpredictable. You just don't know. Hopefully, there's enough checks and balances within the American overall system, for want of a better word, that can keep him in check. So in other words, I mean, it sounds silly, but you just hope there's enough checks and balances that he doesn't push the big red button on North Korea. <laughs> But, you know, the American system has survived many maverick presidents and many dangers, and there are checks and balances. And, and the president himself, the president in America is very different to the president in South Africa. They don't control Congress. They can't initiate legislation. They run the administration, and they are the chief of the, all the armed forces. But surprisingly enough, there's, there's less power, less direct power assigned to the president in America because of their constitution than what the president in South Africa or the prime minister in the UK will have. But let's, let's, put, that, let's put that aside for the moment. Donald Trump did arrive at the right time as president. The U.S. economy heavily damaged in the global financial crisis in 2008. Interest rates were cut to zero to try and get out of the problem. And the central bank put in, I don't know, pick a number, $10 trillion to revive the economy, to get all the debt out of the system, to stabilize share prices and house prices. So that's what was necessary to do it. Now in the last two or three years, you've seen the net result of all of that free money. The economy is recovering. And just as an aside comment, that's one of the risks this year is the free money's disappearing. Mm -hmm. But I think we'll be okay on that one. It doesn't mean so, that the train wheels have been taken yes, off. Yeah. The economy standing on its own two feet. So Donald Trump did arrive at the right time in the economy, and his policies, his economic policies, effectively his economic policies, one thing which is now he's achieved, cut taxes, which he's achieved. And he's cutting taxes for actually more, more than the super rich than the middle class. In fact, I think the middle class might be neutral and poor people are paying more. But he's cutting taxes. So, I mean, his economic policies in general, probably favor the American consumer, which is, of course, a major part of the global economy. But it doesn't favor global trade. Now, it's got this whole America first protectionism. He doesn't like these economic trading blocks. In fact, I don't think he likes anyone, you know, because even his friends, he insults on Twitter. <laughs> so it's, it's a difficult process. But, I mean, understand, he can rant and rave and propose anything he wants to. So far, other than the tax story... 
He's got nothing actually through Congress. Eh? He's got no new laws. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one to say that he himself can greatly affect global economic trends. In general, I would say he's slightly negative for global econo- e- economics because I suppose if you f- follow the so-called consensus economics, where consensus economics says free trade for everyone, no one's, no one's really protected from anything, and if you can't compete, you die. I mean, that's, that's essentially f- what, what we've been running on. I know there's, there's a special word for it, I just can't remember it, but that's essentially what we've been running on since the 70s and 80s. Um, now, he's against that because somehow he thinks it sucks American jobs and it affects American jobs, which is total lunacy because America, there's no one there who wants to work, who doesn't work. In fact, the unemployment is the lowest it's ever been. In fact, they're short of people. So I don't know how he floated his whole campaign on, you know, Losing American jobs and bring jobs back to America. In fact, there are too many jobs and not enough people. And that's the economic reality. But I don't think you will, unless he does something completely maverick, will massively negatively affect global growth. It actually looks quite favorable at the moment. So that's a very positive story. Just on a few minor issues over there, I think what Trump wanted to do was make sure that the manufacturing that was made for Americans Mm. was brought back to America, motor manufacturing. And then I've I've seen quite a lot recently, uh, you know, especially on YouTube, where dairy farmers and farmers of, of vegetables have turned around to the administration or and said it's very simple if we do not have low cost labor like the mexicans can't do it says those jobs are available to americans mm. they don't want they them they don't want them yeah. and you know i had a very similar scenario with a farmer out here in putzfontein where he built tunnels and when i we were talking the majority of his staff were mozambicans mm. and i said look it's a bit strange why are you using mozambicans when there's such a high unemployment rate here yeah and he said, and then these were his words, and, and I, you know, I'm just going to repeat what he said to me. The temperature in those tunnels is anywhere between 35 and 45 degrees, mm-hmm. and you're working there the whole day. He says, Mozambicans are used to hot, humid temperatures, and they can cope in there. Mm-hmm. South Africans pass out. They, it's mm-hmm. just too hot. Gotcha. I remember thinking, that's a bit, uh, it's a bit flimsy. Mm-hmm. But practically, when, you want to, when you're running an operation, you need it to run. That's the way he sort of overcame it. Yeah. And again, I'm looking at these people, um, you know, who are saying to the American uh, administration, if you can finance Americans who prepare to do these jobs, we'll take them. Yeah, but, but that's why you've had this. That's why, simplistically, all the metal bashing jobs left America and started leaving America in the 80s. So when you look at job statistics, America has created a phenomenal number of new jobs over the last 20 years. I mean, phenomenal. As I said, the unemployment rate is 5%. But it's all been in services and finance and tech. The number of people who bash metal, for want of a better word, has been static for 15 years. So that was his power constituency. But there's a good reason why motor cars are made in Mexico and China and why fridges are made in Korea. Is that it's cheaper to do it there because people are prepared to work for less. The American worker, so this is interesting, the American worker, if you just measure output, because of the auto, the, 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 the way they run their factories and the, automa- the, the, autonom- um, the automation in, in the factory, they're actually one of the most productive workers in the world. So they're actually highly, they, they, America works. The problem is 
they paid four times more than the other worker. So per dollar of output, it's very expensive. Even though per unit of output, they are highly efficient workers. It just costs too much. You can hire the same wage. It might be 20% less effective, but you can hire it at one-fifth of the cost in Mexico than you can in America. So this is economics. You know, this is they specialize in making airplanes and spaceships and computers and not even computers, just writing the software and the tech and the Googles and all of that. That's the American speciality, and no one can touch them on that, just about. But manufacturing has been in decline in America for decades now. It's not new to the Trump administration. Interesting. Just, just a, one point that you mentioned there about the American worker being the most efficient. Then if you remember during and after Marikana, it came out, it was, there was a huge spotlight on the efficiency of the South African miner. Yeah. And what the South African miners were saying is that Australian miners are paid four times what we paid. Yeah. And when I had mining economists on the show, they turned around and said, yes, that's absolutely true. But the efficiency of the Australian miner is 12 times, or six times, sorry, of the South African. Mm. Not that they're stronger or quicker or faster. The mechanization and the equipment in which they use allows them Mm -hmm. to be so much more, and therefore you can pay more. But look, I've also, there's there's lies, damn lies, and and statistics. If you measure the South African iron ore worker against the Australian iron ore worker, and you measure it on tons per uh, tons per person, not tons of iron ore, total tons. So the stripping and all of that. South Africa is actually comparable. And this is no output per worker. But when you measured it on tons of iron ore, their ore body is 10 times better than our ore body. So the price so, is so there's So there's, okay. there's, 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 there are many ways to skin this particular cat as to how you measure it. I mean, you take the gold mines. Uh, uh, an Indonesian worker in a gold mine in Indonesia is 20 times more productive per ounce of gold. But the problem is they get seven ounces of gold per ton of rock. We get half an ounce of gold per ton of rock. So it depends on how you measure all Thank of you. these things. You know, just a, a, again, as I started talking about labor, I was in Israel um, a few months ago, and I was on a particular kibbutz called Be'erot Yitzchak for, for a weekend, and I had a lot of time. So I walked around, I looked, and what I started noticing is that when I went to the the dairy and the, 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 the milking parlor, um, it was on a Saturday, and I was interested to see how they malt on a Saturday with all the, the religious um, complications. And I noticed that the people working there weren't Israelis, mm. they weren't Arab, they, they were Eastern people. Mm. And I was interested, and then I went to the kitchen, and I looked through, and I see the people doing the heavy lifting, so to speak, also. And I asked around, and they said, no, they're all Vietnamese. Mm. And I said, well, when did this change? You know, when, you know, what you told us at the kibbutz, it's all idealistic. Mm. You know, I'll do what I'm good at, and Wayne will do what he's good at, and our wives will do what they're good at. Yeah. And we all puts pure, you know, unrefined uh, um, communism. Mm. Why are these guys doing the heavy lifting? And it came out as that the world has changed. Things have moved on. Yeah. And it's now no longer an Israeli who wants to stand there for hours and hours milking cows mm. every single day. These guys can come in. They can do it. They're good at it. And to me, there was an interesting take on, on, on the world, how you can still be efficient, but yeah. they take these people who are slightly more skilled and put them in slightly more skilled positions and let people who are happy to work in those yeah. areas for that salary, let them do it. 
and well, that's the same I worldwide, found that yeah. quite interesting. No, it's the same. It's the same worldwide. I mean, that's that's ultimate, I suppose, the free market and yes. capitalism is that you let people do the job at the cheapest rate possible. And if those skills or those set of people aren't in your country, you either take your factory to the country where those people are or you bring those people to your country to do the work. And ultimately that is for the benefit of the global economy. I mean, it sounds, it sounds and a lot of people will take offense to this, but under these rules, for want of a better word, under these capitalism rules, I mean, the world's a significantly richer place on average than where it was 50 years ago. Well, there's no significantly doubt. richer. Every, just about every country in the world is significantly better off, except for North Korea. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what's going on over there. Yeah. But interesting to see that there is a little bit of communication happening in the last couple of days. Yes. Um, I think the saber rattling actually got um, the, the leader of North Korea a little bit nervous when he realized that the world knows he doesn't have much of an army and no. what it does doesn't really work. And uh, to go to war would be an invasion. So it was it was an interesting take. Well, just before we go to the break and then we change tack a little sure. bit, I want to talk about particular shares. 2018, we, we mentioned in the beginning that we're all positive, we're all upbeat, we've got a new dispensation, okay. so to speak. When you speak to CEOs, when you speak to people who are making decisions about big companies with large workforces, what are they saying? What's happening at the dinner table? Well, look, everything has been about how poorly run the country has been. And the bribery and corruption is actually of less negative influence than just simply running the country badly. Now, the policies, we've spoken a lot about policy uncertainty. That's probably the biggest single thing because policy affects how we run our lives. But the second thing is just the amount of money that's now needed to bail everyone out. And I mean, Eskom needs 20, 30 billion literally in two months. Otherwise, they can't pay salaries. SAA needs another 10, 15 billion just to buy fuel for the airplanes and pay pilots and other people's salaries. Sanral needs 7, 8, 9 billion because they haven't been able to implement the the, the, the ETOL. they just got no money coming in and they've spent all the capex. I mean, who else... Uh, Railways need money. Does Cecil Isco? No, they're fine. Okay, so that was interesting how those two sort of escaped it. But like a place like Donnell's on his knees. Yeah, I mean, Donnell's needs a couple of couple of billion. And this is not that all the money's been stolen through bribery and corruption. It's just totally an inefficient running of the system. I mean, Eskin's by far the best example. Now, if you're in capitalism and you've got to spend 500 billion rand on building a 50-year asset... You can only borrow 250 billion. You ask your shareholders for the other 250 billion. That's that's the way it works. You put in half, you go and borrow the half, you spend the 500 billion, and then you make your money back and your profits over the next 50 years. Government couldn't put in 250 billion. So Eskom's been having to balance their cash flows, the negative 500 billion, before you get any income from borrowing as much as what they can in the markets and then increasing our tariffs enormously just to get cash flow. So there's the real problem at Eskom. It's not the 5, 10, 15, 20 billion that's been stolen on bribery and corruption. or I don't know, I don't know what the number is, but it's actually they were financing 50-year money effectively out of petty cash. I, I know we need to go to the break, and I'm not quite sure if you're the right person to ask the question to. 
the bottom line is we haven't had load shedding for a long time. No. What on earth is going on? We've got excess capacity now. We've built so much and the economy's been so poor. Electricity demand hasn't changed in 10 years. Eh? The number of units being sold hasn't changed in 10 years. There's when, been no increase in when capacity. When do we have the big load shedding? That yeah, was the big load shedding was 2007, 2008. Okay, so that's, that's 10 years long, ago. Long time ago. So since then we've stabilized. Yeah. And it simply means that there's no economic growth. There's no economic growth, and they've increased capacity. In fact, Eskom is begging people to use electricity now. But their own, their own pricing, their, their big price increases, which they had to do, otherwise they would have run bank on bankrupt because the government didn't have more money to put in. So their own price increases have resulted in all of us becoming so efficient in using electricity because now it's expensive that even though the country has grown, the units of electricity have not grown. I mean, it's very simply, you're an, you're, a, you're an iron ore smelter. Cheaper for you to go and open up a smelter in Malaysia and send the ore body there to smelt simply because the electricity is cheaper and the government gives you guaranteed price increases for the next 20 years. Imagine Eskom giving you a 20-year contract where they're going to guarantee what your price is going up. Every year, we don't know if it's going up 20% or 9 We just don't know. And that's one of the policies there. But, but Eskom's actually got massive excess capacity. And I think what's happened, if I take myself, for example, you know, we went solar, we went yeah, gas, we went low energy, da-da-da-da. And yet, whenever you when I do my tax, I look at what my annual expenditure on total rates and taxes, electricity, all mm. that is, it hasn't changed much, yeah. whereas it should have come down. But yeah. increases have negated Negated that. the effect of the volume, yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. RV on money. 12 to 1 p.m. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. It is 18 minutes to that 1 o'clock. When, let's talk about... Um, certain shares that I've been looking at um, for myself uh, for, for the year um, and I've got a very different way of, of looking at um, I look at price earnings and certain shares the price earnings can be 26 you know the first thing you taught adversity if it's over 18 don't it's touch it. Yeah. Uh, it it's going to take too long but yet it's a very good share I and mean, the perfect example would be the discovery share mm. the price earnings is very very high um, yet it's a share that keeps going up yep. and it's a company that's well run. But before we get there, let's just quickly look at um, a share like, like Discam. Yeah. Um, a very well com- run company, mm. company that generates a lot of profits for its owners and shareholders, yeah. opening lots of stores. The shares come on. It's done relatively, relatively well in yes. the short term. Is this a case of maybe a great company and not such a great share? Yeah. Look, just very quickly on, on shares and valuations. Yes. In theory, a share price is today's value of all future profits. That's what a share price is supposed to represent. Now, let's say you've got two companies. They've both got the same expected profits over the next three years, but the one company is just more volatile than the other. That one will be cheaper. But in theory... Future profits, today's prices, gives you the, the share price. So even if the share is expensive today, as you said, the 25 or 29 price earnings ratio, if its profit growth is twice the profit growth of a company's at a 10 price earnings ratio, the first share might in fact be cheaper than the one at 10. So we understand this is a complex issue, but essentially you're trying to guess future profits. That's Fair what enough. a share is. You, that's what a share price is, is the market's guesstimate of future profits. That's it. It's, a, it's a simple, as simple as that. Now, to come to Discam, Discam's in a very good position 
in that they are benefiting massively from the demise of the corner pharmacy run by your uncle. Those, that model is gone. You have got to be part of a franchise. And this game is one of the winning franchises. Big format stores, lots of people, lots of footfall. That's the first advantage is the closure of the little pharmacies because of legislation effectively. Their second advantage is very loyal customer base. So when you go into a discim now, it's not just medicine. You can go and buy your health food. You can go and buy your TV dinners. So they can expand their product. You can go buy shoes there. Mm-hmm. They can expand their product range to their customer base. Still quite significantly from what they got. So they're not just a pharmacy. They will become even more of a general retailer over time. So those are the two advantages. So I like it. I think it's good. I think it can outpace the underlying South African economy. Not forever. No one can do anything forever. You know, maybe they'll come under attack by the supermarkets with their in-store dispensary. But so far, they've got quite a good niche, and I think they're doing quite well, and I quite like the share. The discovery share. Something I'm asked a lot about Mm -hmm. is, is the bank going to impact the share positively or negatively? Um, My take is that the money's already been spent. Money spent, yeah. Um, We're now just waiting for it to roll. roll. If we look at their history, they don't go into anything with mediocrity. No. Uh, They go in there. And I just say, you know, if you had to overlay the, um, the Capitec share, over the discovery share, maybe that's the future of the discovery share. Yeah, look, you must look at discovery in two in two respects. Discovery South Africa has got one asset only, and that is a very loyal and expanding customer base. So all Discovery South Africa has done over the years is sell more product into that customer base. So they're very lucky because, to be honest, they're probably the only life assurer that's got such a loyal customer base. So now banking products is just another product they're selling to that same customer base. And they've spent the money, but understand the true money they spend is when they start giving out loans because then they need the capital to back that loan. Right. So they haven't really started to invest capital yet because transactional banking you don't make money on that's break even but it's lending money to people that that's that's where you make the money so but that's the one part of the discovery by far the bigger part of discovery is the overseas and there especially it's the chinese thing pinging so the future of the discovery share price isn't dependent on discovery bank in south africa that's small it's actually what's depending on pinging in China and, and that's going quite well. So that's the actual future of the discovery share price. It's what happens in China, not what but happens in me, South Africa. But my, my understanding of China is that it's not. It, it's mainly vitality in China. Yes. How does and, and in other places in right. the world? But this is a good product they're selling. It's a good service they're yes. selling. It's vitality. Which, what vitality? We all know vitality as free gym fees and that sort of stuff. That's not what vitality is. Vitality is. Closely and carefully examining your client base, their habits, what they eat, how often they go to gym. That's why you get all this information. It's it's effectively big data yeah. so that you can price your premiums and your risk correctly. That's where Vitality comes into its own for the company using it. It's not all the benefits and to get clients. It's actually being able to price your risk correctly. And then just quickly before we go to the break, and then I'm going to spring a, a left side story on you there. Is there any room in commodities left, or is it too late? Sure. Um, I think there's a little bit of room left, but the easy money has been made.
So if you're going to get him, you know, you no, don't have to I think you can still do quite, you can still do okay. I can think you can still make lots of dividends because there's massive cash flow with no capex. But the easy money has been made there. Okay, let's take a quick break. Craig, sorry, I know we are a minute and a half early. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Avi on money, 12 to 1 p.m., only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. It is 10 minutes to the hour of 12, of 1 rather. So we've got about 7 minutes left. In studio with me is Wayne McCurry. Wayne, you spoke all these big important yes. things, but come down to your passion, which is cars that are not, uh, not new. Yeah. Well, just tell us a bit of a history. How did you get into it? What do you do? How do you spend your spare time? No, well, look, I mean, I like restoring old motor cars. I don't like driving them because they're terrible to drive in modern <laughs> traffic. So they, they sit and hopefully I can charge the batteries every now and again. But I've always done it because it was a hobby of mine. It's, I like it. It's a, it's a great relief to my work when you can go and do some welding and some grinding and work with your hands. So to me, it's always been an interest and I've always liked it and I've done it effectively my whole adult life, restored old cars. So I've never done it to make money out of it. But certainly in the last 10, 15 years, prices have gone through the roof, quite frankly, on, on classic cars. You know, those old cars you used to buy for literally nothing, you know, the old scrappers, I and mean, then you could restore them, um, don't exist anymore. Simply because the prices have gone up so high that you can now make money restoring the cars. So everyone's restoring the cars. And ultimately, that leads to oversupply. So this is a market like any other market. I mean, simplistically, simplistically, E-Type Jaguar. Yes, I was going to ask you about E-Type Jaguar, the first ones that came out, the so-called Series 1 E-Type Jaguar. That's that that almost mantis-looking thing with the long Long bonnet. Long bonnet. It was uh, Enzo Ferrari said it was the most beautiful car ever made. Okay. That was his own quote for a competitor's car. Anyway, 12 years ago, a really good one, 350,000 rand, 300,000 rand. Today, a really good one, 2 million. I, towards the end one of and a half million, 2 million, yeah. On that note, towards the end of last year in Woodmead, uh, not in Woodmead, in Santon, just across the road there from Hyundai, I went into the Rolls Royce. Yes. And I, and I walked in and I said, look, I'm, I'm a tire kicker. I just want to have a look. I've seen your shop. And the guy was wonderful. It took me around and he showed me an old Rolls-Royce Rolls 1960 that belongs to the president of Gambia. Yes. That was sent up to I have a service. That, that black one. I know the car. And then he took me around. And what I was amazed is that it works in blocks. Mm. You've got certain years that are yep. blocked together. And there's, there's minimums and maximums within those years. And... You know, it's a, just a matter of the older you go, the prices just go through yes. the ceiling. Yes. And if you're sitting in the 50s, 60s, you can still pick up something for 300,000 rand. Yes, you can. But I mean, I mean, the roles, uh, the, it's interesting how the dynamics works. All the cars that you lusted after in your 20s, when you get into your 50s and you can afford and you want them and you've got some spare cash, then the values go up. Right. So right now, maybe the 70s, Maybe the 80s are starting to get a little bit of value because the guys who lusted after those cars in the 80s have now got the money and the price will go up. But it's still really the 50s and 60s um, cars that, that are increasing massively in value. So that's why you get these blocks. It depends on 
effectively the demand and the purchasing power of, 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 the, of the demand. Now, I'm a bit older than you. I was born in 1959, so I like the 60s cars. Right. And I don't like the 80s cars or the 70s cars too much. I like the 60s cars. So, uh, <clears throat> but a lot of money has been made on classic cars. And it's also all the TV and all the programs you see about car restoration on TV. It all fuels demand, all fuels interest, and all the massive auctions and the prices going through the roof. But there are a few telling signs that you might be reaching the top of the market. First of all is, first sign is, there are actually unit trusts overseas that just make money out of buying and selling classic cars. That's always a worry because it always tells you, hey, maybe there's too much interest in this. Right. And a little bit like Bitcoin possibly. Second thing is, People who know nothing about classic cars are all of a sudden are car, rest- car restorers and car experts. They know nothing. They've never held a spanner in their lives that all of a sudden they're making money on classic cars and they view themselves as experts. You know, everyone's an expert in a bull market. Eh? You know, rising tide raises all ships and even some rocks. So that's another sign that that you must be a bit cautious the market be approaching the top. And secondly, money's been free overseas forever. Not forever, for 10 years. There's been free money. You can borrow money at negligible interest rates. So then hard assets do go up. Art goes up because there's no carrying cost. Your carrying costs are very low. But the moment interest rates start to go up a little bit, then it's not so easy to borrow money to buy this asset because its price might not go up so you can make money and pay your interest bill. So there's been a very positive environment for assets, be it shares, property, cars, art, for the, since the global financial crisis 10 years ago. And that was intentional. The central banks and the governments wanted asset prices to stabilize because otherwise the economy would have been in deep Absolutely. trouble. But that, that period is coming to an end now and it's starting to roll over a little bit in 2018. So, you know, be a little bit cautious about classic cars. Once again, the golden rule, there is effectively only one true golden rule in investments and that is you must own a diversified portfolio. So if you think classic cars are great, have 5% or 10% of your money in classic cars. If you think discovery is great, have 5% or 8% of your money in discovery. If you think NASPAS is great, have also the same amount in, in, in NASPAS. Don't go put 40, 50, 60% of your assets in one investment or one idea. And that was something we didn't get to discuss, which was Steinhoff, which I yes. wanted to discuss. And we're out of time, but when you look at the unit trusts, even those who are holding Steinhoff, the amounts were 3 Five, 4%. Six, exactly. 5 so was the highest. Wayne, as always, we're out of time. We can sit and talk the whole afternoon. Thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next week. Have a great week. Goodbye.